I have such a basic S list. Same, dude. Psycho made my top five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to just prompt me again? Okay. So. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we missed. I'm Zach Pocklib. I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we are swapping two movies about relationship problems. Dial M for murder for Amanda and get out for me. But first, Amanda, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Things are good. But I have been back to the theaters since we last spoke. I feel like I've seen something else, but I just recently saw Annette, uh, the Adam Driver and... Marion Contier movie. <laughs> I'm so sorry to that woman. I cannot pronounce her name, but wasn't at all what I was expecting. A very strange film, very French. It's a very French mm. film. Go in with an open mind. But again, like I would watch Adam Driver just like paint drywall. Like I would watch him do anything. So it was great. It was a great time. <laughs> How much did Adam Driver's character remind you of his character in Girls? Not much at all. (laughs) Just had to check. It did like editing the Francis Ha podcast and then watching Annette. And then he's in the trailer for that new Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. The last duel. There's just been like a lot of Adam Driver content lately. So I restarted watching Girls. I've watched a season and a half (laughs) in the last 24 hours. Oh my God. (laughs) The episodes are real short. They're like 25 minutes long. So it's really easy to get through them. But those early years, man, they're really good. Um, This is actually a a girls podcast. This is secretly a girls podcast. Um, (laughs) Other than that, watching a lot of Mad Men um, on my TV grind for sure. Are you done Um, with Mad Men yet? I have like four episodes left, oh, but I'm man. now in I'm now in like girls' world, so like I have to get out of it for like a couple hours. Very different just New York, to fi- just to finish. Very different New York. How are I you? I'm good. I've also been back to the theater. I've seen a few movies. I saw the Green Knight, which you haven't seen. So, but like it's a very dense movie, and there were times where I had to like lean forward in my seat and be like, "All right, Zach, pay attention to what's happening." Like I don't know. Um, I love. I enjoyed it. I love Dev yes. Patel, so I'll definitely be seeing it. Yeah, shout out to Deb Patel. Just a beautiful man. But more importantly than that, I've seen two movies that have ruled on streaming. I watched Hustlers for the first time. Hell yeah. Man, J-Lo in the fur coat. That iconic. movie rules. That movie fucking rips. And then yeah. I also watched My Fair Lady. I watched that in the same night. It was, it was a Very night. weird emotional range for you. It felt right, though. I'll shout out a couple of movies I've seen in streaming, I guess. I watched all three of the Fear Street movies, which was oh, yeah. a new thing that like Netflix did where they had like a trilogy of horror movies that came out uh, one week after the other for three weeks. They were fine. I thought the second one was the most fun out of the three. Lots of needle drops. But definitely if you are... Like have done your horror homework, you'll understand like all the references, and like that's always fun when like that kind yeah. of stuff pays off. So that was good. Incredible. Let's uh, use the very sliver of a chance to segue from horror <laughs> references and doing your horror homework to talk about the two movies that we are talking about. I watched Get Out for the first time, and you watched Dial M for Murder for the first time. Let's talk about why we paired these together. 
So I actually think this is great. So I wanted you to watch Get Out for like forever. And we were trying to figure out like the easiest way to pair Get Out with other movies. And we came up with relationship problems, which is still (laughs) the funniest thing that will ever happen on this podcast. I think that's so good. But I love that at the end of the day, like we both chose, like you chose like a murder mystery. <laughs> like, which you could have chosen so many other things for relationship problems. As and I the, almost did. I chose like seven different movies for this. Yeah. But as the like rom com expert out of the two of us, I love that for relationship problems, you chose a murder mystery. <laughs> I. I know my co-host and yeah. I just want to give you content you'll enjoy. And also I was surprised that you hadn't seen a Hitchcock movie just in general, um, especially one that is notable. So I was like, yes, I can, we'll, we'll do that one. That one makes sense. Yeah. It's one of the few I haven't seen. So I was really excited. Um, so yeah, they're paired lots of relationship problems in both of these movies. We'll get to them both, but do you want to start the coin flip? Yes. All right. Call it. I'll do tails. It's heads. Two in a row. I want to save Get Out because I feel like we'll go longer on Get Out. Let's talk about the island for murder. Okay. Amanda, you're going to have the most wonderful breakdown. I'm trying to keep (laughs) it succinct uh, because there's a lot of stuff that happens. Tell me what happens in Dial In for Murder. All right. So socialite Margot, who's played by Grace Kelly, is married to famous tennis player Tony Wendis, who's played by Ray Millant. But she's having a long-term affair with an American named Mark Halliday, who's played by Robert Cummings. Halliday is coming to visit. Tony invites Halliday to an event while he's in town. Later, Tony is seen with an old classmate of his that he basically blackmails into killing his wife for him because he knows about the affair. And Halliday and Margot both don't know that Tony knows about the affair. He has this really elaborate plan that seems really foolproof. He kind of feels like he's thought of everything. On the night of the event that Tony invited Halliday to is when this plan is supposed to take place, but it goes wrong when Margot defends herself and kills the intruder who is Tony's classmate. Tony panics, obviously, when he comes home and his wife is alive um, and comes up with a cover story very quickly and convinces Margot to play along to Inspector Hubbard. And things ensue, as we'll get into, but Margot goes away for murdering the intruder, essentially. And Halliday comes to Tony on the day of Margot's hanging, begs him to tell a lie to pin it on Tony, which it turns out that he had figured it out. It is the truth. And after a series of double, triple twists, uh, Inspector Hubbard knew all along that it was Tony and watches him sort of fall right into his trap. That's basically what the movie's about. Yeah, I think you got it like efficiently right on the head. Yeah. If I had to like pitch someone, I'm like, this is kind of what happens. Yeah, no, you did. You did a great job. We talked a little bit about like this being one of the very few Hitchcock movies I hadn't seen. But why did you pick this one specifically? For that aforementioned reason. But also, this is the first collaboration with Grace Kelly and Alfred Hitchcock. They make three movies together. Dial In for Murder was the first one. And then Rear Window in the same year. And then the next year, they did To Catch a Thief. So Grace Kelly, one of the iconic Hitchcock girls, Hitchcock blondes, my favorite for multitude of reasons. And it's just a fun movie. It's a, it's kind of like a, you know, you love TV. It's kind of like a bottle episode of a movie which i guess all movies are bottle episodes but like it really just (laughs) takes place in this one area so it was like a hitchcock movie that where the suspense kind of came less in like the movie making but in the plot Mm -hmm. of of it all and the dialogue so i thought it was a little bit of a interesting take on a good old hitchcock thriller 
Yeah, I I agree. I definitely thought it was fun to watch Grace Kelly. She's obviously extremely talented. That's, again, not a very original thought. But (laughs) I, I agree in your idea about Hitchcock. Sometimes I would say that the angles or the cinematography of the directing is what adds to the script's thrill. And this one was really just like about the script being the thriller part of the whole thing. Yeah, uh, it kind of felt exciting. like yeah, it kind of felt like minimalist Hitchcock, if you will. Yeah. So, like, let's talk about the movie a little bit. What were the when you watched this for the first time? What stood out? What were your impressions? As I've been talking a lot about, I'm in a Mad Men phase, and uh, January Jones is Grace Kelly. Like, she is reincarnated as Grace Kelly. I can yeah. stop thinking about that as the movie is going on. I was like, oh my god, they look so similar. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just really spot on. There was a lot of dialogue for mm-hmm. a Hitchcock movie, but not in a bad way. I really liked that. I thought that the characters played really well off of each other. And the way they talked to each other was still... It was very dramatic but still very natural so i really liked that as well and the thing i noticed the most and i actually texted you about it was that i felt like there was a lot of forensics in this plot <laughs> for the fact that it was made in the 1950s mm-hmm. like you watch him like dust off fingerprints and like make sure that certain pieces of evidence are burned so that you know they can't find any like dna or whatever or not dna but like they can't find any evidence they can't find any proof yeah. but like there's just a lot of forensics in it which i <laughs> thought was really fun for a movie from the 50s so i, t- I texted you i was like oh yeah it's like csi hitchcock <laughs> it was great yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, one of my favorite things is like, all right, which TV show is Amanda going to compare this movie to? But no, you're right. Like all of those little detail, like the minutia things, it's kind of like when we were talking about the sting, it's almost if it was a slower paced movie because Hitchcock is a pacing god, it would mm-hmm. seem tedious, but it just seems detailed and fun in the way that it's presented in it. Yeah, I uh, I completely agree. And that will actually bring me to something that we can talk about later is one of the first things I looked up about the movie. Um, yeah, because of the the pacing. Did you ever get lost in like the dialogue part of it? Because like, I've watched this movie probably three times. I watched it for the first time, I think a year and a half ago. And I've watched it a few times since because it's a randomly comforting movie because it's just people talking in a room. Mm hmm. It is. It it sometimes still like confuses me. Sometimes, I actually didn't think it was that hard to follow, but um, I was like very engaged with it. So maybe because I was like really tuned in, I could kind of keep up with it. But um, I thought that like every time, because there are like a lot of twists in Uh the movie. Like there's the twist when you find out that. Halliday is basically saying you should lie about this, but it's exactly what the original plan was. Yeah. And like the fact that uh, Tony is going to let Margot go down for the murder. Like that's like a big twist. Obviously, the biggest twist is that she kills him instead Uh of her being killed. And, you know, and then there's the big twist on like how they captured him. And there's so many like the movie is always rotating. But I think that it's sort of segmented in like 20 minute intervals that like Mm. every 20 minutes there's another twist so like you just gotta like follow along for which section of the plot we're on next the intermission was very helpful (laughs) i thought that was very cute even when you stream it now there's still an intermission obviously it only lasts like a couple seconds but it was it was very sweet i thought that was really fun but i didn't have to like follow along on wikipedia or anything like that i didn't have to like double check that i knew 
that I was right about what I was watching, which sometimes when movies have like a lot going on, I Uh will, I'll like use that as a guide of like, okay, am I, am I seeing this correctly? Like, am I understanding this correctly? But no, I, I felt like I, because of the way it sort of broke it up and I think like you're right because of the pacing, I didn't mind like how many times it like turned the plot upside down. And speaking to like the circular nature and like staying on their toes, it's kind of interesting that this movie, the protagonist almost is Tony Wendis, is the guy plotting the murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least whenever I watch it, I'm like, oh, why am I rooting for him to kind of get himself out of this? I don't know, I know if you felt that same way. Yeah. I'm like, I kind of want him to get away with it. Because <laughs> it's kind of impressive. Like you're watching him kind of do this tightrope act of like, oh, the plan didn't work. Uh, this was supposed to be a perfect murder. Now it's complicated and I have to figure it all out. And it's it's almost impressive but you're like at the end of it you're like oh now she's in jail now i don't want him to win well i think it's cool because like they introduce this character tony wendis obviously pretty early in the movie and when he is talking with his classmate who he blackmails into murdering his wife like he comes up with the perfect plan like mm-hmm. you instantly you are under the impression that he is super smart that yeah. he has like thought of everything that he it's foolproof and then when it doesn't come true, he thinks on his toes and he's still the smartest person in the movie. Like he's still outsmarted everybody. But at yeah. the end for Inspector Hubbard to have outsmarted the person yeah. we thought was the smartest the whole time, I think is just a really great ending. Yeah, because if you rewatch it now, like as you're watching Tony Wendis, you know, make his way through his plots, you realize like he's smart. Yes, but he's not quite as smart as he thinks he is. Yeah. And my, one of my favorite lines that kind of comes back and pays off is when he's pretending to be innocent. He's like, I'm afraid my murders would be something like my bridge. I'd make some stupid mistake and never realize it until everybody was looking at me. Oh, yeah. Which I didn't realize that until after the fact. And I was like, oh, Hitchcock. Or, That's I mean, exactly I'm, what happens. Yeah. And, you know, great screenplay written by uh, Frederick Knott. But yeah, it's a very playful movie, right? Yeah. So, I had a great time. Yeah. So, but even with that, you know, I feel like Hitchcock movies always kind of stick with you in a certain type of way. So what have you thought about the most since watching the movie? So the thing I, the only thing I knew about this movie, and I didn't really know a lot. I knew, um, obviously that it was Hitchcock. I knew it was very famous, but I knew it had been originally shot in 3D, but I didn't know like many more details besides Mm -hmm. that. So I did a lot more research because obviously when I watched the movie, I was like, oh, this is just like a regular movie. Um, And it's probably because our impression of a 3D movie is like by the 2008s where it's like so obnoxious. and Well, we're post-Avatar. Yes, correct. And so my impression going in was was like, oh, it's going to be like really obvious, but it, it like truly wasn't. But I was reading about it and I pulled this quote that sort of explained it. So I'll just read it verbatim. But it says, in order to make the film look appropriately interesting in three dimension, Hitchcock added a pit into the floor of the set so the camera could move at lower angles and capture objects like lamps in the foreground. So it sort of gave a three-dimensional, like, I mean, this is me now. It gave like a three-dimensional uh, interpretation of, of different yeah. things. Back to the quote, it says, as a result, the film looks like no other Hitchcock ever shot, particularly for the infamous scissors murder that the film's thrilling centerpiece. Unfortunately, by the time Dial M for Murder was released in 1954, the 3D fad was dying out, so the film was shown in 2D at most screenings. So that's really interesting that it was filmed in this, like, quote-unquote, modern 
you know, way that it was 3D, but by the time it finished, and it only took them like 36 days to make this, to <laughs> to shoot the movie, not to make the yeah, movie, yeah, but to yeah. shoot the movie only took 36 days, which was another thing I noticed that both of the movies that we picked for this episode were shot in a very small window. But by the time it was, they had done all this work to make it three-dimensional, and then by the time it came out, that like wasn't popular anymore, so it kind of yeah. didn't matter. I just thought that was, <laughs> I think that's so interesting. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I, I didn't know that about the movie until you brought it up at the end of our last podcast, and so I also like researched it. And it, when you think of older three D movies, I honestly only think of movies made in the two thousands, like like Spy Kids three D. That's exactly that- what I think of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say you're millennials without saying you're millennials. Truly, but like wait, like. Our impression of 3D movies is like they go really out of their way to make yeah. it obvious that like in this scene is when the hand will be coming at you. And, and, and like, you're going to reflex and duck out of the way. And it does not translate very well to a 2D screening. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would love to see this movie in 3D. I saw an interview or something with, with Martin Scorsese and he said the movie goes from good to great with 3D. Like he had seen mm. it, a 3D printing and whenever... Uh, they started making Hugo, which obviously they did in 3D. Uh, it was the first movie he showed to his, you know, whole production. Interesting. Uh, so I'm like really curious as to what that looks like because, like you said, like we were saying, nothing really jumps out at the screen. So yeah. I think I specifically like that quote I was reading, and this is probably what Scorsese was talking about, but like the scene with the scissors, like the stabbing, like might look like just so different in a different dimension, I guess, is the only real thing I can think of. It's like truly the only action that happens in the movie. Yeah. Unless, I mean, because you are always in that room, maybe at some point with like, if you have the the lamps in a certain way, you almost feel like you're sitting in the room on these conversations even more so. And like, you know, you get into a theater, you are immersed, all the lights are down and, and you have that whole experience. God, I love theaters. Yeah, um, love a movie theater. Love a movie theater. Maybe it's a little bit different, but yeah, that's it's so interesting that like Hitchcock was filming this for the fad, and then was able to kind of turn on his heel, turn on a dime, and still have this quality movie. It still made like two point something million dollars. Like, and for the time, yeah. like that that's huge. Like, yeah, it still was very successful despite not being shown in the way it was shot. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So other than the 3D of it all, uh, what was the like the first things you looked up about the movie? So this is another bingo card. <laughs> the first thing I looked up was, was this a play? It was. <laughs> <laughs> it was a play. Um, so both the movie and the play were written by Frederick Knott, as we mentioned earlier. It started as a BBC production, and then it was in the West End, which is basically the Broadway of England, and then it made it across the sea, and it was on on Broadway, um, and it aired on the BBC, and as I mentioned, and this at that time, it was purchased by a smaller company, and then Warner Brothers purchased it from them for, I want to say I read um, $75,000. They purchased basically the rights to make the movie version. I had said that the they only shot the whole movie in 36 days. And I think it was something like in the play debuted in 52 and the movie came out in 54, like something like oh. that. Like it was a quick turnaround. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, it is like all in one room, more or less. 
There mm-hmm. is like when they go outside of the like onto the foyer, it is very like this would be like a stage left situation because uh-huh. you don't really see them out on the foyer. And like the way that they move is very like of stage. Um, and I, I thought that was really cool. There's a lot of like monologuing and things like yeah. that. So I was like, oh, this would make a really good play. Right, right. <laughs> what it, a surprise. <laughs> yeah, that that's funny because I remember the first time I watched it, it's like, I guess I just assumed it was a play or became a play because it seems when we talked about a few good men, I was like, I was going to say West Wing. When we talked about a few good men, you talked about how it kind of seemed like a play mm-hmm. and it was a play and, and the differences and the translations of that. It just seemed like Dylan for murder could have been like copied and pasted more or less. Um, yeah. From and the I'm, stage to I'm kind of the under screen. the impression. I'm kind of under the impression that it was. Yeah. Um, it's the same screenwriter. I imagine that a lot of changes were made because it does seem so theatrical, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I thought that was really good. So another thing that I wanted to know, which we talked about this uh, the last time when we talked about the sting was, did it ever get a remake? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is not a lot of Hitchcock movies get remakes. I think mostly because they're so canonical, but also so many current, filmmakers draw direct and obvious inspiration that they almost don't need to make a remake (laughs) it's like uh you hear bands like i don't they don't ever want to cover a beatles song but everybody's been influenced by the beatles yeah you could hear the beatles in like every pop song ever made but no one is like doing the beatles anymore but yeah um i wanted to know if it got a remake and it has it's gotten a few different variations some have been like tv movies um, I think one was like a uh, like a small British production, but mm-hmm. uh, the most obvious one was a, a movie called The Perfect Murder, and it's a remake. It stars Michael Douglas, Viggo Mortensen, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, They're wow. all in it. Um, but some of the characters are combined, and like there's some different changes. Definitely, um, like there's a whole revenge plot against the husband where Viggo Mortensen and Gwyneth Paltrow like team up and and all this kind of stuff I didn't realize that they were um so similar and but I I'm under the impression like the characters have like the same names and stuff like that so that that is like the most obvious uh that's the most obvious one and then I wanted to know where Hitchcock was in the movie so Uh yeah this is my favorite little easter egg he's known for making little cameos in his films they're not as obvious as like the Stan Lee in a Marvel film, like, and now is a scene with, like, with Alfred it, Hitchcock. It's, sometimes it gets pretty close. Like, I think, uh, yeah. what was the movie? Like, A Man Who Knew Too Much, when they get on the bus and they just sit down next to a man, and it's like, well, this is the Hitchcock part. Yeah, some of them are definitely really obvious, but this one was definitely really low key because there's truly only four characters in this movie. Yeah. Um, so they couldn't make it really obvious without making him a main character, but he's in the class reunion photo that mm-hmm. Tony uses to sort of like inspire um the intruder to kill his wife. I mean, that was it. Like I I thought the movie was really straightforward. Yeah, it yeah. didn't really leave me with a lot of questions. Which is good. I feel like half of this podcast is me <laughs> asking you things about the movie that I well, didn't understand. No, no, no. To be fair, we go back and forth because anytime musical theater comes up, I'm like, Amanda, what? That's fair. That's fair. It is pretty even. But yeah, I thought that this one actually was like very direct. And yeah. I really liked that. I just want to talk about Grace Kelly really quick. First of all, 
I mean, everybody's talked about Grace Kelly. It's not a new topic, but it's just a fascinating career because she made like 10 movies in like four years. That's crazy. It's such an insane run. And only maybe three or four of those are held up since then. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the three Hitchcock ones. And then I'm partial to High Society, the musical she did. That's a adaptation of the Philadelphia story with Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's such an insane run. It's like I think of it like those athletes who come in and have like one or two great seasons and then disappear forever. I don't <laughs> yeah. like I don't know who those people are in hockey, but I think of like a Gilbert Arenas in basketball who just comes in is awesome, and like everybody who loved that moment will never forget it. And you know, when I really went back and went into movie history and stuff, every time Grace Kelly showed up, I'm like, wow, she's like a freaking star. And obviously, like she's a beautiful blonde woman. And She's like, so beautiful. <laughs> and the way Hitchcock directs her, especially in To Catch a Thief and Rear Window, he puts her in these like beautiful gowns and gives her all the glamour shots. But she does have this kind of like regal uh, energy and very just like, ah, oh, yeah, like Grace Kelly stabbed me in the back with some scissors. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. She's, <laughs> yeah, I she's a Hollywood sweetheart for a reason. Like she's just so beautiful and she could do kind of anything. Also in the Grace Kelly of it all, it's also always fun to look at the rumor mill when it comes to the productions because Grace Kelly was beautiful. I knew she was beautiful and she was co-starring with a lot of beautiful men and took advantage of that as is her right. Obviously with like fifties and sixties Hollywood journalism, uh, I'm sure some things were blown out of proportion and made to put her in a bad light, but she did become a princess. So like, who cares? But the rumor that came from this movie was that she and Ray Milland had uh, an affair that lasted for like a long time and kind of mm. put both their marriages in jeopardy. Obviously, again, this is gossip and this would be uh, on like TMZ now or something like that. But it is one of those fun, like, because all these old school movie stars are so put together and they're so pristine yeah to, to, to know that like they just had some raging hormones and they were working with a lot of act- attractive people like and there was not any social media so you could kind of get around a little easier and like film photography is harder than digital photography so the paparazzi didn't have as many shots like I, yeah. for so many reasons uh, I, I enjoy all those things so i just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge the grace kelly of it all um because yeah man shout out to movie stars i i think that hitchcock does a really good job and there's a couple other directors that do a really good job of creating like the beautiful woman in peril without making her seem like she's useless or like she's not a damsel in in distress really ever, but she is, she has this aura of like the beautiful woman who need, who's like, it needs help. Yeah. Which is the, the funny part of this movie and her role in this movie is this is the least amount of power she has in a Hitchcock movie. So in rear window, she's doing all of the work for Jimmy Stewart. Basically she's climbing up, uh, the other dude's apartment building, and in To mm-hmm. Catch a Thief, she's going blow for blow with uh, with Cary Grant and and that whole story. So uh, it's fun to see how Hitchcock kind of like unlocked or figured out how to direct Grace Kelly, and you know when she became a princess and uh, she couldn't, which is a sentence that exists, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and didn't and couldn't really act anymore for good and bad reasons. Uh, Hitchcock would joke like, "I would give this role to Grace Kelly, but she's off being a princess." So obviously, again, we talked about it or we brushed over it, but do you have a a soft Hitchcock rankings, like a top five maybe? 
Yeah, I have a, I'll put them in soft order. I feel like all things are allowed to move around, but I would probably say that Rope is probably my favorite Hitchcock. It's very, uh, okay, dinner time murder mystery. And I love just the whole like white male, can we get away with it (laughs) privilege aspect of it? I think that's really fun. I actually was thinking of Dial in for Murder in comparison to Rope because it's both different variations of trying to get away with a attempted or successful murder. Man, Rope. And like the whole single shot of it. Yeah, Rope is really good. I, I might put Rear Window at number two. That movie really stuck with me. I think it really does a lot. I love like the lighting and the shadows in it as well. I feel like it was the most I was suspensed throughout all mm. of like the Hitchcock movies. And then I'm going to do the uninteresting thing and put Psycho at number three. A, extremely good movie. B, like no one had ever thought about that twist like before. It, it's so good. But it also like it became so iconic so quickly. And like the the music that plays obviously is like repurposed and it is synonymous with like a slasher film it's what you think of and the fact that um like Bates Motel like the TV show became very famous you could even mm-hmm. like you know you could make a cultural reference of like Bates and everyone kind of understands what that means it also helps that it starts in Phoenix Arizona uh <laughs> shout out to the Westward Ho and then I don't know, I'll probably continue again on the uninteresting path. Um, I'll put Vertigo at number mm-hmm. four. Truly a beautiful just encapsulation of the city of San Francisco. And then I'll put Birds probably five. Birds is really mm. unsettling. And there's like that aspect of the Hitchcock horror sometimes. And it definitely like makes large packs of birds for the rest of your life, like very unsettling Mm. um but (laughs) it's not a particular fear i have so (laughs) it was not much that i uh really ever stuck with oh you know what i should have put strangers on a train at five strangers on a train. okay i was gonna ask you about that one yeah yeah i really like that movie too i don't know alfred hitchcock's great hitchcock loves putting a tennis player in peril (laughs) loves putting a blonde and a tennis player in peril (laughs) Yeah, basically. So what are your five Hitchcocks? I'm going to cheat and put a six. That honorable mention is uh, To Catch a Thief just because it's beautiful. It's a little slow, but uh, just watch Cary Grant and Grace Kelly eat chicken uh, on a Vista. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, my number five is Dial in for Murder for all the reasons we explained earlier. Number four, Strangers on a Train. Like you said, that movie is just very tight. It's a fascinating concept. I like the Technicolor Hitchcock movies a lot, but that black and white for some reason just really stands mm-hmm. out for me. Number three, I have Notorious with Cary Grant and Ingmar Berman. Just a freaking beautiful movie, a sexy movie. Uh, it, I like it a lot. Number two, Vertigo. What a take. One of the all-time greatest movies. I feel like it's the most Hitchcock movie, yeah. like the most of his brain. Uh, and I think about the spinning shot where it like goes from inside to outside around Jimmy Stewart. Definitely a Hitchcock that I had to like follow along with uh wikipedia the first time i watched it i was like what is happening right i was like wait is this is this the same person is it not like what's going on yeah that's a fun one and then number one rear window it's just that movie rules it's got everything i want it has grace kelly and beautiful gowns suspenseful plot 
Jimmy Stewart doing Jimmy Stewart things. Yeah, it really is just so good. Just a good one. Watch a Hitchcock movie if you haven't. Yeah. To sort of like close this out um, again, I it very like quickly jumped my list. Like I really liked this movie. Yeah. It kind of has everything that I like in a movie. Um, yeah, I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, it really is so rewatchable too. I thought that was great. I watched it like twice, I think. Good. I'm glad I could show you a Hitchcock movie and show you yeah. a murder mystery movie for once. That was real fun. All right. Are you ready to start talking about probably the best like scary movie of the last 10 years? I mean, when you put it that way, I don't know if I can live up to it, but I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, let's do it. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to get to Get Out. This episode of Blind Spotters is not sponsored by Vesta Coffee Roasters in Las Vegas, but you could say this host is fueled by them. Vesta is run by people passionate about coffee who want to share that passion with their community, for which I am personally grateful. I love rolling into their downtown Las Vegas location to pick up a cold brew and a bag of beans, and now they have a location in Summerlin complete with a drive-thru. Next time you need a morning or afternoon jolt of caffeine, go to Vesta and you'll be happy about it. As always, support your local businesses. Zach, so the movie I chose for you in relationship problems, which man, are there relationship problems in this movie? <laughs> uh, I chose Get Out. So why don't you start by telling us what the movie is about? Oh man, that's okay. 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 A lot, so, a lot of movies. So it's a lot of movie and there's nothing, I can't like just yada yada a lot of this. So, okay. Correct. <laughs> The movie opens with a black man played by Lakeith Stanfield walking in a suburban neighborhood, and he is eventually kidnapped. Then the movie moves to Chris, who was played by Daniel Kaluuya, who is a black photographer, and his white girlfriend, Rose Armitage, played by Allison Williams. Chris is about to meet Rose's parents for the first time, and before they make the drive to their house, Chris airs his concerns about being a black man meeting his white girlfriend's parents, to which Rose reassures him that they are not racist. On the way there, the couple hit a deer, but eventually they get to the house. There, Rose's parents, Dean and Missy, played by Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener, respectively, meet Chris, and it's a little awkward as you'd expect. One night, when Chris can't sleep, he goes outside and is creeped out by the housekeeper and groundskeeper. So when he goes back inside, Missy sees him and coaxes him into a little therapy session because he's a psychiatrist and wants to hypnotize Chris, apparently to help him kick his smoking habit. She sends him to the sunken place, but Chris wakes up like it was a dream. So from there, a bunch of the Armitage's friends come to visit for their annual party and it's hella awkward the almost all white crowd frequently says weird and racist things to chris and even the black people seem off we see a super crazy scene where it's like a silent auction bingo situation that kind of eventually shows that everything is not as it seems chris finally convinces rose to leave but rose can't find the keys and eventually we learn she's also in on the plot to kidnap him the armitage family subdues chris and tie him up into a chair and that's when we learn that the Armitage family has basically been kidnapping black people and selling their bodies so they can put their white friends' consciences back into the black bodies while the black people's consciences are stuck in the sunken place. Eventually, Chris is able to break out of his bindings, kills each member of the Armitage family except Rose, and at the end, using the groundskeeper's help, Chris defeats Rose. But just before he's about to kill her off, uh, cop lights show up and plot twist, it's Chris's friend Rod who figured it all out on his own because he's part of the TS motherfucking A. Yeah, I I skipped so much, but honestly, like you you got it. Like 
Yeah. Good job. Shout out to Rod. Um, tell me why you picked this movie. Here, get your bingo sheet ready. I'm a big horror movie fan. <laughs> and this was the one where people started to pay attention again to horror films, where they were mm. like, oh, these can be cinema again. And obviously Jordan Peele's first directorial debut was a really big deal after coming off of like a very famous comedy career. Mm-hmm. And Daniel Kaluuya had been in some stuff, but nothing at, at the same level. Allison Williams, I knew from <laughs> I knew from Girls. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it just, you know, the movie is pretty stacked, but it is one of the movies, if you like movies, that you have to see. So I'm glad you watched it. Yeah. I knew you could handle it. It gets right under your skin more than it like scares you. Like you're not like jumping out of your seat or anything yeah. like that. But you're just like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> no, what? No. It, it kind of <laughs> reminded me of watching when Silence of the Lambs, where it's like that's also classified as a horror movie, but it's not really a horror movie. It's just a suspenseful thriller uh with some terrifying things in it. Yeah. Uh and I think Get Out came out the same year as it, right? Like it was a whole horror mm-hmm. thing in 2017. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about 2017 movies in general, but yeah, it wasn't that scary at all. Like I knew the deer jump scare was coming. There was the classic like cut with loud noise to a scary image type thing. But like yeah, it was more just like unsettling or uncomfortable. Um granted, I'll admit, like I had known the big parts of the plot because it was kind of impossible to not figure out this movie if you were online or just like a person in 2017 because it was such a sensation so i was kind of it was my first watch but like i had known enough to kind of pick up some things that maybe i feel like you would learn on a rewatch but again we'll get to all that yeah you weren't like completely blind it was just also in your blind spot. It was a dark spot. spot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a hazy spot. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, So what were some of your first impressions of this movie? Daniel Kaluuya is titanic. He is awesome in this movie. I love his eyes in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, there's the sunken place scene, right? Where he is, his face is just frozen as the these like big walloping tears fall down his face. So good. But even in the smaller moments when he's dealing with all these kind of dog whistly, microaggression, micro racist uh, kind of comments, he kind of brushes it off with his eyes. He's like, he's making sure that you know that he knows that that's not an okay comment, but he's just trying to like get through this weekend at his white girlfriend's rich parents' house. And reading an interview, I thought it was funny that Jordan Peele called him the final girl in a horror movie because the cliche is like the black guy dies first. But also and like final girls are a horror trope and they're it's, it's the, the scream queen is just as famous as the final girl. Can you explain the final girl trope? Yeah. So the final girl is basically like the only person to make it out alive. It's usually a girl. So like if you've ever seen Carrie, she's the final girl cause she's the only one to make it out of the auditorium alive because she's the killer. The final girl scream queen Venn diagram is Jamie Lee Curtis's character in Halloween. Like she survives throughout the whole thing, even though everyone else dies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's usually the the main female character that we're seeing it through that ends up fending off the bad guy. But all of her friends die at like the camp or whatever. Gotcha. But yeah, talking about Daniel Kaluuya, it's fun looking like this was really a breakout. Like I know you knew him from Skins, right? 
Mm-hmm. And we, I think we both watched that Black Mirror episode that he was in mm-hmm. the 15 Million Merits, but it wasn't like, oh, that's Daniel Kaluuya. But after this movie, it became, oh, it's Daniel Kaluuya. Um, it's either like people who know film know him as Daniel Kaluuya, or I feel like people just know him as the guy from Get Out, like, yeah. which is, is great. This movie's well, he, only like four years old. Literally, he follows it with his being in Black Panther as Wakabi. So he just blows up even more. And then mm-hmm. he just is coming off his first Oscar in Judas and the Black Messiah, which I love that performance. I love that movie. And it's another great movie where he, I don't know, in every Daniel Kaluuya movie, he's able to like, again, use his eyes to convey so much. It's crazy. Like, Yeah, he's, he, can, he has a very expressive face. Yeah, but not in like an overacting way. And just kind of like he can be menacing. He can be a leader. He can be trying to make it through this weekend. Uh, he's awesome. Also awesome is Lakeith Stanfield. He's a very bit part in this movie. It sounds reductive to call him cool, but like he's just like a great mumbler. Like (laughs) Mm -hmm. when like when he's mumbling his way through the phone call at the beginning, like in the walk through this neighborhood, it's hilarious. And then when he has to play basically like a sixty year old white man, it's so locked in. Like he's so good at just melting into these roles, but not in a way that's where he's a character actor. He is like a movie star because it's the way Lakeith Stanfield plays it that is particularly him i guess he is somebody who's like facial expression i mean this whole movie is about facial expressions but like Mm -hmm. his facial expressions when we when we see him again as the situation when he's like in the sunken place just the look on his face and then is really jarring (laughs) and you're like yeah that's that's when you're like oh shit something is not right here yeah i don't know what it is and then when daniel kaluuya like flashes in with the light and he like comes out of it for a second the like look of instant terror yeah and it just is so subtle and it could be really over the top really dramatic really like bodily movements but he Mm -hmm. just plays it so in like a couple of movements in his eyes and instantly you're like this is a new person yeah every <laughs> every character <laughs> every character he has is so like kind of grounded and and feels earthy in a way like he's so shifty and it, it man he's freaking good these two guys and then the other thing obviously that stood out was jordan peele what a debut like that's crazy he's the the dude from key and peele made a horror movie that blew up like his very first movie had a budget of four and a half million and made two hundred fifty five million. Got uh, all these Academy Award nominations. Like I remember listening to the Bill Simmons podcast and he had Key and Peele on, and uh, Jordan Peele was talking about how his next project was going to be this horror movie, and he kind of explained it. And I don't remember if it was him or if it was uh, Key who was like, "No, Jordan loves horror. Like he loves the art of a horror movie, and it's so clear in this movie." Yeah, he really, I mean, I talk often about doing your horror homework and like he, he has, like he is clearly a student of the genre yeah. through and through. It's so cool because like even the, a lot of the best uh, sketches in Key and Peele were like scary, but like, but played for laughs. And you could see the in the writing and in the filmmaking of those sketches, like no, there is something there. And obviously it's clearer now that we have Get Out, we have Us, we have Jordan Peele, the the filmmaker, as opposed mm-hmm. to Jordan Peele, the sketch comedy writer. But reading about it, he said uh, this is going to be the first of five thrillers that he wants to make. Obviously he made Us, which is the second one. He has a third one 
Um, he's teaming back up with Daniel Kaluuya. I think Steven Yeun's in the movie. It's called Nope. Can't wait. I'm excited for you to tell me whether I can watch that movie. And so he was quoted saying he wants to make, quote, more social thrillers about different human demons. And the first human demon that I was trying to tackle with Get Out was racism and neglect for one another. It's going to be another piece of that project. So I'm going to be really interested to see what that five piece is going to be like. It's really interesting. I want to talk just a little bit more about Jordan Peele before we move on. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack in this whole movie, but I've seen a couple of other things that Jordan Peele has done. He's about to come up with, come out with Candyman, um, mm-hmm. which is a remake of a, of a horror classic. Um, and it has a, uh, a predominantly black cast as well, which is very exciting. But I think there's a really big difference between Jordan Peele, the producer and Jordan Peele, the writer. So he wrote and produced both Get Out and us, which are like his projects, but he's produced a bunch of other stuff as well, including Candyman, which is coming out. It's a remake of a horror classic. But I think that so much of the strength of this movie and what was strong in us was the writing. Like the script was so good. The story was so good. But I think it just really showcases what a good writer he is, is what I wanted to say. Yeah. And he's done a lot of great work. His production company is called Monkey Pop Productions. So like you said, he's produced those films. He produced uh, Lovecraft Country, which is a show I didn't watch, but a lot of people enjoyed. And yeah, it's, it's cool to see him using his kind of capital to pay it forward and kind of give some more voices, some more light with the clout that he got from this movie. And he will continue to do because now Jordan Peele movies are events. Yeah. I mean, I think that I mean, I think we're going to talk a little bit about it later and let me know if you want me to, to stop and we can hold it. But I think that it is both the pro and con of the movie Us is that. Yeah. So that, I want to get to that, but I want to hold it to the end. Okay. What is the thing you've like thought about the most since you've watched this movie finally for the first time? Yeah, I have like a micro thing, a scene, and then a macro thing. So the okay. first one I'll talk about, like, because I had known basically what the plot of the movie was, you can kind of, I could kind of pick up on the breadcrumbs left in the dialogue, especially like when Chris first gets to the house and Bradley Whitford's giving the tour and he's like, oh, you know, we always keep a piece of mom in the kitchen and uh, the housekeeper is there and the housekeeper's played like really awesomely by Betty Gabriel as Georgina. She's yeah. dope in this movie. That's one of my notes too, is that it's a lot more obvious on second yeah. watch. And yeah. like saying like, oh, when they were there to take care of the parents at first and when they died, he couldn't bear to let them go. And he very pointedly says, I couldn't bear to let them go. So it's kind of, and it's left like, it's like vague enough to play either way. And, and there's a bunch of those little moments, like whether it's even the deer scene where Daniel Kaluuya is really worried about it and Alison Williams doesn't really care. So it, it makes for a, what I would assume would be a, a very rewarding movie to return to on multiple times. And then got to talk about the sunken place scene. I mean, that's a scene that transcended the movie mm-hmm. itself, transcended the quote unquote culture. Like the teacups were everywhere. The sunken place is now just a term used, right? Man, it, it's... I watch movies with subtitles, like because sometimes I don't hear well. I love subtitles. This yes. is a pro subtitle podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> shout out Bong Joon Ho. Um, <laughs> but in that scene, the closed captioning says like "spoon hitting cup" or something like that. I was going to say the audio design of that scene is so powerful. Like the scraping sound it makes when it comes around the corner of the cup each time. And then the like 
the hollow like drum almost of her clinking the spoon on the side of the cup. Like it just like reverberates, even though it's a teacup. Yeah. And Catherine Keener just is so like sneering. She's so like, I know I'm going to control you. You don't know it yet, but yeah, she's, she's, she's she's stone cold. Yeah. She's just icy the whole time. It's so good. Yeah, and then Daniel Kaluuya obviously is awesome because how hard is it to play like a person who's frozen and is terrified like that? This is such a random shout, but like I remember listening to the commentary on the DVD of the movie Push with Chris Evans, and he said one of the hardest <laughs> things. <laughs> I know. Shout I know. out Push. Which is like apparently not a good movie, but I enjoyed it when I was like, I don't know, 14. But he said the hardest thing to do as an actor is to play someone in pain. Hmm. Just because like if you're not in pain – it's a, just a hard thing to mimic. Mm-hmm. And, and like Daniel Kaluuya is kind of in pain, but he's also just like paralyzed and like terrified, which I assume is even just another obstacle in portraying that. And like, I just don't know how he did that. Like, I don't know how he did the tears. I don't know how they made all that. Like when she says sink and, and he sinks and that's just a beautiful shot. Like and just like the whooshing sound it makes, like when he yeah. sinks into it. Yeah. And then like in the, in the, proverbial screen like just zooms out and he's like he sees her but he can't and the sound design like it's all so i have chills right now talking about Mm -hmm. it it's so dope like like i always think there should be a best scene oscar (laughs) yeah because not that we need more oscars but and not that the show needs to be longer but like when jordan peele dies like that'll be on like the top of his obit video and when i was reading i was reading this uh interview with Jordan Peele and Wesley Morris in the New York Times. And he said of the scene, quote, the first moment in the writing process where I sat there and cried was realizing that while I was having fun writing this mischievous popcorn film, there were real black people who were getting abducted and put into dark holes. And the worst part of it is we don't think about them. I hadn't been thinking about them. We put them in the back of our minds. That was kind of a trigger point for me. The idea of the back of one's mind. Um, That's really good. Which is super powerful, really thoughtful, um, and and from there we can kind of go to you know the obvious part of this is the race portion of the movie, which is like the main crux of the plot, I guess. Mm-hmm. All the racist things that are said are like incredibly obvious to black people, to people who have experienced this. But it was funny going back and reading reviews and being like, "Oh, this is like shining a new light. This is so timely in the time of Trump." And, and it's funny like I always think like there's a certain pocket of critics who always call these stories timely even though like it's evergreen. Mm-hmm. And and in that same New York Times piece, Wesley Morris wrote, "Quote, racism is old, but Peel found a poetic new way of talking about it. He gave us a language we didn't know we lacked," which I thought was an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I think the thing that Um, I always think about as far as the timeliness of this movie is that, you know, it came out in 2017. I remember it came out in February, which means Mm -hmm. Trump had really only been in office for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Like he had just sort of, it would just become, you know, quote unquote, you know, Trump's America Mm -hmm. does not mean that racist people weren't doing racist shit before that a hundred percent. But something I think about a lot is that Jordan Peele, says all the time that like 
he wrote this to be an Obama era movie. Yeah. Like, and it's just so proven by the fact that there's like all the little things that get said to him that like people, it's a little bit more indirect, Mm -hmm. but still blatantly racist. But they're basically not saying like, I will not hire you because you are a person of color. They think that they're not racist. (laughs) And it just comes to like one of the best lines in the whole movie is just Bradley Whitford saying, I would have voted for Obama for a third time if I could have. And it's just like, that's not, (laughs) you can't say that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and it's funny because it's with 2020 and the Black Lives Matter protests that were going on all year and and the work that's being done. A lot of these things are a lot more obvious or a lot more in the quote unquote mainstream, right? And you know, you and I, you're white, I'm Asian, and we are only a certain amount of equipped to be able to like articulate these things or like understand these things. And we're still doing, you know, that kind of education of our, and, and work and whatever. But it's interesting watching this movie with the post 2020 lens as well. Yeah, I agree. I think in a 2020 lens and a 2021 lens, it uh, is really interesting. Yeah, um, And then like, again, there's like dozens and dozens of like people who have written about this both racism and like get out as a piece of scholarship within that uh, who have done better. So like, look that up. It's super interesting to read about. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it's like, I want to say it's UCLA, but I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on it. But there was a class about get out both for like, and I know this because Jordan Peele talked about it. I want to say on like Fallon or Kimmel or something like that, a late night show where he stood in the back of the class once he found out that this class was happening, he went and like kind of shadowed the class to see what it was all about. But it 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 became a scholarly thing to interpret because mm-hmm. it's so well written as well as just like being a very good movie. It has so much to say, but it also like I mean, like Jordan Peele said, like it is also like a popcorn film. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just really entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. It was UCLA. Um, and they, yeah. they had to transition to like online, like you said, but um, that's super cool. I, I wish I would have taken like a movie class uh, where you just kind of studied a film. That would have been awesome. Yeah. But like a whole semester or half semester, even, I'm not sure about the class details about one movie. It just shows yeah. you like how much there is to unpack there. What were some of the things you looked up about the movie after you watched it? So as we've kind of uncovered i love looking up like the most minor detail thing uh so i wanted to know what kind of camera chris had and there wasn't an exact one so but you could kind of see it says canon 7d which is great camera i couldn't figure out the lens it looked like a sigma lens it didn't look like a your traditional canon glass but like i don't know yeah he had a good setup though i enjoyed all the little photographer moments like when they Mm -hmm. talked about you know you talk to the blind guy and he was talking about his eye and like what he's able to convey in his photos as well as when he's at the party and just like using his camera to like zoom in and spy on people kind of and when he goes to like he looks up and he sees georgina looking at herself in the mirror and well she's she's adjusting her wig yeah yeah yeah, yeah, and and he's about to take a picture, but she turns and sees him. He like quickly looks away, and I'm like, I've done that while taking pictures of people. <laughs> I I know I that's always uncomfortable. And then another thing I looked up, or uh, the kind of final thing was obviously the Oscars, which I mentioned before. But really quick, 2017 as a movie year ruled, and I so think good. it's a. And we've talked about how like that's kind of an important movie year for us. Like we were graduating college getting into the real world and really kind of went to the movies a lot. We, we started kind of paying attention to the Oscar race. So some of the movies that came out that year, Phantom Thread, Lady Bird, Good Time, Logan Lucky, Columbus, The Last Jedi, The Big Sick, 
Call Me By Your Name, The Florida Project, The Lost City of Z. Like this was a <laughs> very good, potentially great movie year. Um, yeah. And that's not even getting to all the movies that were nominated for for Best Picture, including Get Out. It earned four nominations and Jordan Peele won for Best Original Screenplay, which is always, you know, the Cool Kids Award. Uh, mm-hmm. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Daniel Kaluuya, Best Actor. The results of it are kind of funny. Like, that's the Shape of Water year. Gary Oldman won Best Actor for Darkest Hour, Ugh. which is a movie that I haven't seen and don't intend to see. But the original screenplay was an awesome category. So Get Out with Jordan Peele, The Big Sick, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. Those are all really good. Yeah, I love three of those movies. <laughs> but yeah, it was. Just, I feel like it was the first year that you and I, like, we paid attention before, but we like really paid attention to like the Oscar races there um, mm-hmm. that year. Uh, also, remember when Get Out got nominated for Best Musical Comedy at the Golden Globes? <laughs> oh my god, that was like I remember people were like in such an uprage about it, like, and yeah. they should have been. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. And, and Jordan Peele, it prompted the Jordan Peele tweet that said, "Get Out is a documentary," which is a great tweet. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> uh, uh, and then Jordan Peele, with his best director nomination, was only the fifth black director to ever get nominated for the award, which is crazy and also good for him. Uh, yeah, really. Notably, just... notably, also all men. Yeah, again, yeah. all all the all male nominees. Do you have a favorite movie from that year? Is it Get Out? Oh my, oh my gosh! You're I, know, to I love to prompt little... these. I love to spring these questions on you. I named some of the best hits. I know those are all really good, but I feel like there's going to be like a uh, like a secret movie. <laughs> that, well, I don't know Co- why. There was Coco. There was It. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Beach Rats. Mm-mm. Logan came out that year. We love. Logan. Oh man, Logan. So as far as like my favorite movie that came out in 2017, like this one definitely has to. This one's definitely on the list. I feel like at the time, like Call Me My Your Name was a lot more important to me. Really, really loved that movie. And in retrospect, I also really love, I mean, I loved Lady Bird, but I think Mm -hmm. it definitely has gotten higher on my list. I really liked The Florida Project, even though I just saw it like a couple years ago. Um, Big Sick, I also came too late, but I really liked that one as well. But as far as like what I saw in 2017, that felt like my favorite movie of 2017, it's probably got to be a tie between that one and Lady Bird. So many great choices. Uh, And again, I sprung this on you out of nowhere. But yeah, 2017 ruled for for me personally, because again, Lady Bird, like we talked about in our intro pod, um, one of my favorite movies ever. Um, Same with Phantom Thread, The Last Mm -hmm. Jedi, Justice for Ray Nobody. Continues to be an Adam Driver podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Adam Driver could have fit in really well in this movie. He mean anything. That Imagine could be if like Adam our... Driver was the brother instead of Caleb Landry Jones, who we haven't named at all in this movie or in this podcast. That could be like our version of, is this movie better with Danny Trejo? Like, <laughs> <laughs> is this movie better or worse with Adam Driver? <laughs> yeah. Love the UFC shout out though. I think this movie has carried on very well and it's four years after the fact and I think it will forever. I think it's one of those movies that instantly is in the quote unquote canon and not just like the white old film man canon but like movie lovers canon Mm -hmm. yeah which is exactly like why i i thought it was really important for you to watch and not that you never thought it was unimportant to watch i don't want to make people have that impression of no i just thought it was too scary i thought i was i'm a wuss 
Yeah. No, I, I, I had a feeling you could get past it for how good yeah, the movie is. Which you were right. You were right. So there are a couple of things that I wanted to sort of like touch on and we can go real quick of like, okay. I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Did yeah. you notice these things? Okay. Um, I guarantee you if it's horror movie stuff, it's not. <clears throat> so some of them are, some of them aren't. This isn't something I wanted to know if you caught, but something I notice every single time is that Allison Williams has like the emptiest eyes. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Like for a movie that's so expressive and like so much about eyes and like looking into your soul, like there's just like glass nothing behind there at some of those scenes. She does such a good job of creating like crazy face. That it's scene so where good. she's talking to Rod on the phone and has a blank face, but it's like, what? Oh my God. No, just for her, her like the voice control in that moment to... You can sound really fake in that. Like if you just try to like sound stressed while you're keeping a blank face, it's really hard to not sound fake. And she kind of comes off pretty real in that. Yeah. I think like another one of the most like bone chilling moments in the whole movie is the moment she's like fiddling for the keys and she just looks up and says, you know, I can't give you the keys, right, babe? And it's just like, <laughs> no, <Yeah>. no. That's a <laughs> moment I on it. <laughs> That's a moment I wish I didn't know as much about the plot because I knew that was coming. Oh, it's so good every time. Yeah. So something I wanted to see if you caught up on was the Allison Williams eating the cereal and the milk separately uh -huh. when she's researching basically like her next victim. Um, <laughs> but the fact that she looked up like NCAA prospects, like I've also entered that Google search for a totally different reason. Love keeping up with basketball recruiting, go devils. I, I kind of thought that was funny, but anyway. Keep going. It's yeah, it's really funny, but it's like she's drinking the the milk and eating the cereal like with her fingers like separately, uh -huh. and a that's just like a crazy thing to do. And like <laughs> Jordan Peele has commented that like he didn't intend for it to have as much symbolism. He just like wanted to get across the fact that like she's crazy. <laughs> like, that's what a crazy person does. But also it is like, A, she's eating Fruit Loops, which is mm -hmm. like a connotation for crazy people. Right. And um, also it is like colored cereal, mm -hmm. pure white milk separated. <laughs> like there is gotcha. a segregation reference in there as well. The chair that he's tied up to when he's watching the video, he picks all the cotton out of the chair. Mm -hmm. And originally that chair didn't have cotton in it. And Jordan Peele like repurposed the chair so that specifically for the fact oh. to have him picking cotton mm -hmm. but then the fact that cotton picking saves him in the mm -hmm. end because mm -hmm. he puts it in his ears like that's that's great it's brilliant yeah. yeah um would you like to do a quick rundown of all the I horror was gonna references say, one of the questions i had was what horror references did i miss because again i could tell jordan peele was a person who really loved the genre but i and I could assume from that knowledge that he would be putting all these sly references or overt references to the movies he loves. So yes, educate me. What horror references did I miss? Yeah. So some of them are ones that he has directly named and some of them are just like, oh, this is this sort of like vibe mm -hmm. or atmosphere. So a big one that he's named is The Shining. Um, you're in a place that you can't escape and that you're like terrified of and you don't know how to get out. And that someone that you think is supposed to be good is coming to hurt you. Mm. So that's like, that's the plot of the shiny essentially. Um, but the opening credits to both get out and the shining just feature like very large text 
on like in blue on the screen mm-hmm. um and he like wanted it to be like a big dramatic entrance just like that and then um in the shining there's a black character named dick halloran who is like a like a keeper at the hotel of some sort and he's compared to rob as being like the people who come from the outside who know something is wrong and come to save you um so they both sort of like fill that role the movie halloween i talked about a lot earlier but um the opening scene with Lakeith Stanfield, which I noted, I had completely forgotten that scene even existed. <laughs> I, I don't know why I had forgotten that scene existed, but like I like turned it on and I was like, what is this? Did I? <laughs> I was like, did I pick up the wrong movie? Oh my God. And then I was like, no, that's Lakeith Stanfield. Like he's in this movie. I had completely forgotten about the whole like intro, intro, the prelude, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely forgot about it. But when he's like slowly being watched and he's like looking over his shoulder as he's walking down a sidewalk, it's like the movie Halloween when you first Mm. meet Michael Myers with the mask. Walter, the groundskeeper, running right at you and then turning at the last second was a nod to North by Northwest. Um, Shout out Hitchcock. Yes, shout out Hitchcock when he's running straight at the camera. We talked a lot about the Catherine Keener and Daniel Kaluuya hypnotist scene Mm -hmm. where... It is two people during like an emotional showdown making direct eye contact with the camera as if you are the character they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And that's from Science of the Lambs. Oh. Shout out to the very first episode of Blind Spotters. My favorite television show, Lost. He Jordan <laughs> Peele has commented that the video that Daniel Kaluuya watches to explain the coagula that happens is reflective of the Dharma initiative videos, um, which is like around season four, but it's sort of this like sit and have it explained to you as both the character and the audience by like a pre-made video. Kind of like the uh, Miss Minutes video in Loki. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then like a couple of movies that are solely based on vibes, but are very obvious. Um, Stepford wives of this like perfect Mm, white mm -hmm. suburban area invasion of the body snatchers obviously. And then Rosemary's Baby, where you can't tell what's wrong the whole time, but everyone's in on it except our main character. Uh, but you know something's wrong the whole time. Uh-huh. And the that like has a lot to do with it as well. So those are the ones I picked up on. Yeah. If anyone else has any more, please uh, let us know. But yeah. those are the horror movie uh, references that I noticed. That was Amanda's horror corner. Last month we had Amanda's music <laughs> corner. This was the horror corner. And I have nothing else to offer. So I guess that'll be it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So let's talk about what we brought up before. This movie versus us. Not that these movies can exist in their own universe, obviously. But Jordan Peele movies are now events. And when us was coming out, it became an event. It was a, the new Jordan Peele movie is coming out. When will you see it? Obviously, I didn't see it because it looked even more terrifying. I love bunnies. My partner owns bunnies and they're cute. And seeing them used as a horror device, I don't want any part of that. So tell me about us. Yeah. So I'm not going to go through the plot of us, but um, I think as far as like its relationship to get out, like I think that us lived in an unfair shadow because Mm -hmm. get out was an Oscar nominated horror film right off the bat and that this was going to be the second thing. And, you know, it's a little bit of the, it's the sophomore slump situation, but I also think had that movie been removed from get out, like I think it would have been more well received, but you kind of couldn't disconnect the two because they were a little similar um, as far as like 
talks about horror, talks about racism, like mm-hmm. it, it's really poppy, like things like that. And the fact that a lot of it has to do with Lapita Nyong'o's eyes <laughs> and oh, her yeah. face <laughs> and like the terror. And like, it just was a direct flashback to Daniel Kaluuya's scenes sometimes. But I think Us is a great movie, but if you watch it expecting to see Get Out, it's not, it's just, a, it's just not. And it's an unfair thing that was sort of like cast upon it, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. Because like we said multiple times, Get Out became such a sensation, like a, a surprise sensation, it, almost like Silence of the Lambs in terms of like it came out in February and then it became this blockbuster Oscar nominated. Jordan Peele becomes an auteur director now. Like there is the get out challenge where you would like run straight at someone's phone and then try to turn away really quick, which I never did because I haven't sprinted t- since like 2015. And so I was very excited for everybody who, like when Us came out. I was like, oh, like Elizabeth Moss is in it. Lupita Nyong'o is in it. Like give Lupita more roles please it seemed like it was almost like there was too much for us to even live up to it and yeah. I, I don't know if you've revisited the movie recently or anything like that but i'm wondering five ten years down the line if there's going to be like a reappraisal of us and it's being like oh you know what this movie was actually pretty good or you know when we think about tarantino movies and like some of the movies that people don't like as much in his catalog in the moment but like when you revisit it you're like no this movie's good too like what are y'all talking about yeah i think in the future people might assume that us came before get out i think it's good i think it has like maybe like one twist too many but Mm. some of my favorite scenes are from that movie it's i'll have to send you a scene with elizabeth moss that just i think about like every day (laughs) is it gonna creep me out like should i wait 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 to watch no it's like you know like i don't know Sometimes he'll put like a little bit of like humor uh-huh. in something where it's just so ridiculous that it's happening with like a horror backdrop. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. I, anyway. I didn't even see the movie and like I can never look at a pair of scissors again, which is funny when we're talking also about Dialing for Murder. Um, <laughs> that's the other thing about Get Out too. They're, it's like genuinely really, really funny. Yeah, it's All good. Of- yeah. So uh, seems like you liked it. I'm glad. I'm glad it wasn't too much for you. Would you watch Get Out again? Oh, totally. I would love to watch it. I think we've said this about every movie, but I'd love to watch it with someone for their first time, which is probably difficult because especially of our generation, a lot of people either know about this movie or have seen this movie, but it's just a well-made movie as well. Like Technically, it's solid. The performances are awesome. The story is fun. It's layered. There's so much to dig into uh, if you want. if you want it there. And so, yeah, I'll revisit this movie, which I didn't expect to say. Um, I expected to really enjoy the movie the first time and maybe be like, ah, it's a little creepy. But I, I rewatched the sunken place scene a few times. I rewatched like a lot of the scenes at the party. Um, Jordan Peele, what a dude, what a man. I can't wait for your next one. I hope it's awesome and I hope I can watch it. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad I can watch this one and kind of finally truly understand like the the moment and the legacy that is Get Out. I think it's going to be like, I don't know, like the Friday the 13th of the next generation where it's like a movie that I, as the parent, saw when I was a teen yeah. and now I'm like showing it to my kid for the first time yeah. and they get like the cool brownie points of like having seen the famous like scary movie. Yeah. Uh, I, it's going to be great. You know, it's funny and not to prolong this a little bit more, but in the same day, without thinking about it, I also watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner for the first time. 
1967 drama with Sidney Portier and Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, where Sidney Portier plays a black man visiting his white girlfriend's parents. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a very different movie. But in a lot of these reviews of Get Out, people were calling it like the worst case scenario of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Watching that movie, you know, it's dated for obvious reasons, but also it's kind of like a capturing of a moment in, you know, American history, in the history of like race in America. And this one kind of does too, because like you said, it's like a post Obama piece of art and kind of needling the self congratulatory white liberals um, who would have voted for Obama a third time. So beyond it being a great movie, it also can be seen in that lens too. So again, really hitting any and every kind of target when it comes to having a movie that has legs. Yeah, it was really good. All right, friend, what we are we it. watching next month for the month of November? What is the blind spot? Oh, I'm excited, Amanda. I'm excited. Let's go. I'm watching Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time, but what are you watching? <laughs> Don't dismiss. I'm very excited for you to watch Rocky oh, Horror too, Picture Show. But this is definitely where the table has have turned um and i'm watching creed for the first time the theme is a different kind of rocky so what do you know about rocky horror picture show before watching it uh next to nothing the only reason i know of it is because of uh perks of being a wallflower the book and the movies. Nice. I know that people go to see Rocky Horror Picture Show and it's like a, a an immersive theater type of experience and you dress up and, and all those things, but I really don't know anything about the actual movie. My goal is to take you to Rocky Horror Picture Show before we record the podcast, but I'm not sure how that's going to happen. I actually did look up Rocky Horror Picture Show Las Vegas to see if there was anything, but the production in Vegas has pushed their performances with everything going on. So yeah, it can't happen yet. What do you know about Creed other than my undying love for a perfect movie? Yeah, I know Zach loves this movie. Um, I know that Michael B. Jordan's in it. Obviously, I know it's a Rocky movie. But if I remember correctly, he is the son of someone Rocky has fought in past Rocky movies. That's all I really know. I saw the first Rocky movie. Loved yeah. it. I haven't seen any of the other ones. So I, I'm excited to watch just Rocky 1 and Creed. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was I was hesitant to give you this one because I was like, oh, it's like, at first I was like, oh, you should watch Rocky 2 before watching Creed. And then I was like, wait, you should really watch Rocky 3 as well. And I was like, actually, you should watch Rocky 4 too. No. And instead, we're just <laughs> skipping to it. So We're going to go for it. If it's good, like, it'll be good on its own. This will be an even-handed podcast because I will be asking you a lot of questions about Rocky Horror Picture Show, I assume, because it's a musical and it's theater and this is my theater. It's an experience. Like, it's (laughs) so much more. It's so fun. You should see Amanda is like just like moving her head back and forth. Like, she's already (laughs) dancing. She's got jazz hands going. Um, I'm jamming. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i can't wait for you to watch creed it fucking I'm, I'm excited to watch creed too like i know it has been an it's been in like an embarrassing blind spot of mine for a long time so i'm excited to watch creed finally I, no, especially not, after how much i liked rocky it's not even an embarrassing blind spot like only because you're my friend it's like surprising that you haven't seen it but like every time creed comes up it's like oh yeah that movie was actually good it, it like when it came out it was the top of like who asked for this kind of list um, okay 
So I don't think it's that embarrassing of a blind spot per se, but within our friendship, I'm just excited. I'm selfishly excited. (laughs) I'm already bursting at the seams to talk about the movie, as you can tell. So um, I can't wait. It's going to be really good. Before we head out, real quick, Amanda, what's on your watch list? I've just been watching so much TV. Um, On my watch list is honestly, I'm trying to watch some new movies. Like I haven't seen The Green Knight yet. Really Mm want to see that. There are a few movies that just got put onto HBO Max. So I know I need to cycle through those and kind of see what's going on there. But yeah, nothing that sticks out specifically besides Green Knight that I can't believe I haven't seen yet. (laughs) What about you? What are you watching? Um, Well, so I was recently sick. I just was like a little under the weather, like allergies or whatever. And so I knocked out a lot on my watch list, but I watched Two Towers which was good, obviously. And so I have Return of the King lined up. I have to find five hours of my life to watch that movie. So that's like the main event one, but there's some others like kind of floating on the exterior. Like I want to watch the Terminator movies for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think Return of the King is is kind of the, the one I'm circling and need to find the time for. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, You can follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod. And you can also follow us on Twitter at BlindSpotters. You can follow me on all socials at Amanda Luberto. And you can follow me on Twitter at Zach Pocklub. And always follow me on Letterboxd. It's a (laughs) fun time. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you again on the second Tuesday of the month when we do a different kind of Rocky. Happy watching.